Psalm 145, verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. The word extol is to, to lift up, to exalt, I mean, to, to worship. My main verse is going to be John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, must worship in spirit and truth. So there's a lot of stuff going on in John, in this, in, in, where we're at. Between John 3, I mean, God so loved the world, the meeting with Nicodemus at night. I mean, Nicodemus is on the Sanhedrin. He has this, like, deep theological conversation. Jesus has this deep theological conversation with Nicodemus. He tells him that you must be born again. Blows Nicodemus away. Fast forward into chapter 4, and I'm, the first 19 verses are not really my subject text, so I'm going to summarize in about a sentence. So John chapter 4 starts out with some baptism drama. Um, says that Jesus needs to go to Samaria. We see a reference to Jacob's well. We were just singing about the God of Jacob. We see that Jesus is tired, that he's like limited. He's He's made this trip over the road, and now he's tired, and he's thirsty. It's the middle of the day, and he meets a woman at the well. Most of the times, the, the women would go first thing in the morning, in the cool of the day, or in the evening. And then um, he asks her for a drink of water. Um, he starts talking about living water. She says, are you greater than Jacob? Jacob gave us this well. And then he said, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And you're now with a man that's not your husband. So this is where we come to John chapter 4, verse 19. So put your finger on that. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews said that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Remember Mr. Alex said that last night? Talking about Acts 17. We, Jesus is saying, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman, said, I know, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Alex asked a question last night. Do you know the God that you claim to worship? Remember Acts 17, they had this altar set up to this unknown God. So they wanted to make sure that they had all the boxes checked. Just in case we missed one. We're going to set this one up, because if that God ever comes, we're going to say, this one was actually yours. What Jesus is telling this woman at the well is, there's coming a time that it doesn't matter. So, I have a bunch of questions, and if you know the answer, you can answer. I don't want distractions, but, I mean, if the first thing I was thinking about and looking at this, why such a simple message to this Samaritan woman who went back, if you keep reading in John chapter 4, she goes back and tells her whole village. I mean, this woman's had five husbands. She's on her sixth man. She's not going, I mean, she's there by at the well in the middle of the day. She's not sharing her business with everybody. But she goes back to her village and tells the whole village about what Jesus has just told her about herself and what she's told him about himself. I mean, this is like evangelism 101. She's going and talking about this stuff. 
So this was not like the meeting in chapter 3 with Nicodemus where they're having this deep theological study. It's also not like Matthew 23 when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees that are using the law to oppress God's people. This is just an intentional conversation with a woman that needs to meet and hear from Jesus. I mean, this is an amazing, and there is so much stuff in chapter 4. So I've tried to consolidate it, and I think I've done that, so now I'm going to go to 2 Kings. But anyways, um, I want to look at the historical background of Samaria. You guys have heard of Samaria, and um, John 4, 4 says that Jesus needed to go to Samaria. He was on his way somewhere else. He was going to Galilee to continue his ministry. And while there's, I mean, you look at the nation of Israel, there's, mount, there's mountainous regions, there's lowlands, there's enemy territories. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But the road to Samaria was the shortest route for where Jesus was going to go in Galilee. But the pious Jews would avoid this route. They didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. They did this because there was just a deep distrust between the Jewish population and the Samaritan population. There was just this extreme dislike. So we're going to look into a little bit of why this was the way that it was. When we get to 2 Kings, and I'm going to kind of unpack this when we get there, but when the, you guys know that, I mean, Solomon's temple, I mean, we're talking about worship, and you, you think you see this big edifice of this temple that Solomon built to the Lord. Right after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. So, I mean, the Old Testament history is awesome. If you guys have ever had, think, I mean, even the adults, think of the best teacher you ever had. I wish that the best teacher I ever had was a history teacher, but he was a science teacher. I love history, but I never really had a good history teacher. Maybe I'll be a good history teacher one day. Um, so the Assyrians, they conquered the northern kingdom. So there's a kingdom of divided and at separate times, I mean, a couple hundred years apart, these, this northern kingdom is conquered. They took up almost all the population and displaced them. They pulled them out of their homes, out of their businesses, and they shipped them back to their home country, the productive people. The people that were kind of on the fringe, they left. Um, the, one that's, the ones that they left behind were kind of the lower class of society, and they didn't need those. Uh, I mean, you guys think about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. That was this time, that captivity. So... These guys are smart guys, and they're bold, and they're courageous. They're, they're taken off into these other places. That was the Babylonian, so this is the Assyrian. They left behind the ones that they didn't want, and the ones that stayed behind uh, intermarried with non-Jewish people, and the, the area was actually repopulated. We'll see that when we get to Second Kings. So the Samaritans emerged as this like new, mixed, religious people. So they got some of the old, they got some of the new, they got some of the unknown, and it's all mixing in together. So these Samaritans, they did have a historical context. If you look in, I mean, I encourage you guys, Genesis to Revelation, but check out the maps too. I mean, the maps are kind of the key, especially when you're in the history books. What's going on? How long, how far is it from here to there? What does it take to get there? But you look at the map, and Samaria is like 20 miles north of Jerusalem, maybe 30 and, I mean, Israel is like New Jersey. So, I mean, keep it in context. So the Samaritans emerged as a new ethnic religious group, and they're this mix. Um, they'd had the connection, but their faith was a combination. So it was really watered down, and they were looking at everything. Um, this, ended, this resulted in the Jews looking at the Samaritans as even lower than Gentiles. Because they're like, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. You're, you're making a mockery of what, you know, 
you're making a mockery of our God. They were taking offense. So they, uh, the route to Jerusalem was, I mean, the quick route was up to Samaria, over to Galilee. The long route and what the pious Jews would take, they would go all the way east to the Jordan. It was lowland, so it may have been maybe an easier journey, but it probably added 10 to 15 miles. And this is not like they had Uber. I mean, this is on foot or, you know, a donkey or whatever, but it would probably add a day to your journey just to avoid Samaria. But it says that Jesus needed to go to Samaria in verse 4. What does that mean? It means that somebody in Samaria needed to see Jesus. He didn't need to go, but he needed to have this meeting. So John 4, 6, I mean, it's in Jacob's well. We just sang about it. So what's this historical significance of this area? So, so much went on right here at Jacob's well. It says Jacob's well was there, the city of Sychar. Uh, this was ancient Shechem, and it was the capital city of the Samaritans. So what happened here? This is where Abraham first, Abram first came when he arrived in Canaan from Babylonia. This is Genesis 12, 6. This is where God first appeared to Abraham and renewed the promise of giving the land to him. Genesis 12, 7. Abram built an altar and called on the name of the Lord, 12, 8. Uh, this is where Jacob came safely when he returned with his wives and children from his sojourn with Laban. Remember Jacob and Laban and all the, the fun stuff with Rachel and Leah? So, a lot going on here. Uh, this is where Jacob bought a piece of land from a Canaanite named Hamor for 100 pieces of silver, where he built an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This established a connection between Jacob and what became known as Jacob's well. Jacob ended up giving this land to his son Joseph. Um, this is also the place where, uh, where Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped. And the sons of Jacob murdered the men of the city in retaliation. We talked about that in youth a couple months ago of like what is one of the most um, graphic and egregious stories in the Old Testament. And I was like, you know, the, the nightly news has nothing on the mess that was the Old Testament and everything that was documented. Um, if you don't know the story, Genesis 48, the brothers come in and uh, clean house. Pretty much, but I mean, it, it's, uh, anyways, I'm not, that's not what I'm teaching on. Um, after Egypt, this is where the bones of Joseph were buried when they were carried away from Egypt, and uh, this is where Joshua made a covenant with Israel, coming into the promised land, renewing their commitments. The verse uh, in Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That happened right here in Sychar and Shechem. So we got Jacob's well, We've got, I mean, the dedication, I mean, Abraham, Abram starting his relationship with God. So much happened in this one place. So a lot of Israel's rich history is right here, where there's this woman at the well in the middle of the day that just met Jesus. It all took place in what's now Samaria. So what happened? Why is this not where everything else was set up? I mean, this is a lot of big things happened here. Flip over to 2 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read through this. I'm not going to dig into some stuff, stuff too much, but honestly, there's a couple of verses in here that are should be probably familiar to you and should be alarming, kind of a wake-up. So, again, this is the Assyrian captivity, but this is when Assyria resettles Samaria. So the people of the region... The northern tribe of, I mean, the northern tribes of Israel, this northern kingdom, have already been taken away. And now this foreign kingdom is repopulating the area with their own people. 
It says, the king of Assyria, I'm starting in verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children Israel. Who was supposed to be there? The children Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he, God, has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. You guys see what's happening there? you got to do something, because these lions weren't here when we got here, and we must be doing something wrong, so you figure it out. You sent me here. I mean, these were people that were sent to take over the jobs and the vocations and the teachings that were in the land, but they didn't know what to do because they weren't from there. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. So they said, send one of the Levites back there, and he can tell them about the law, can tell them about this God of this land, and then the lions will stop. I mean, it's just, make the lions go away is pretty much what it was. Then one of the priests whom whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. We had a retreat a couple years ago, the Revere Retreat, and we were in Ecclesiastes, but I mean, we were talking about the fear of the Lord. So he said, go teach these people what they need to do, but it was to make the lions stop. It wasn't to become God's chosen people. Here's where it kind of comes off the rails. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashimah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sephirvim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow the statutes and ordinances. Let me skip down a couple. Verse 41, So the nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images, and their children and their children's children has continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So when the Bible says even to this day, that's to the day that it was written down. But honestly, looking at the context of this, they got the people there bought in. They learned deceptive practices, and they implemented them, and they keep doing them. They pass them down to their kids. These people were not worshiping the Lord. So I have a question for you. Were all of the Samaritans bad people? I mean, they're sacrificing stuff to other gods. They're, you know, they're fearing the Lord, but they're not worshiping him. We've got this woman that's got you know, five husbands, has had five husbands. She's now in another one. Is there any examples of a Samaritan that's not a bad person? The Good Samaritan. I mean, Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And you've got this person that's doing the right thing. I mean, you've got a person in need, and the good Samaritan is the only one that turns to him. There's one more, and it's in Luke 17, 16. You guys remember the story of the ten lepers that were healed? How many of them turned back and gave thanks? Guess where that person was from? Samaria. Awesome. It doesn't matter, especially now that Jesus is on the scene. It does not matter. So, as I was looking through this, I was, I mean, just, I mean, first thing, word search, Samaritan, Samaria, whatever. And I look at Matthew 10, 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I was like, why is Jesus going there in John 4, but telling the disciples to not go there in Matthew 10? It's because Jesus has already been there and gave a really simple message to a Samaritan woman that was openly in sin, and she went back and told everybody about Jesus. I mean, the revival, the evangelism, and the message of Christ and the gospel was already going forth to the Samaritans. He's like, you guys, and I mean, even Jesus, when he was talking to the, the woman at the well, he's like, salvation is, is of the Jews, but don't go back there. Those guys, I mean, that's already working itself out, which is pretty cool. So what can we learn from this in the way that we share our faith? It doesn't matter who you're talking to. It doesn't matter if it's a Catholic, if it's an atheist, if it's your uncle, if, I mean, if it's a school teacher. You can share Jesus with them, and it doesn't matter what, what their background is or, or whatever else, and his message can go forth. So, back to worship. From John 4, where are we to worship? There's two things. Somebody can't answer this one. John 4, 24, we are to worship in... Spirit. Okay, so I'm location and um, environment, I guess, is what we'll call it. So we're to worship in spirit. The location, so we just saw this rich history of Israel in Samaria. All these things that happened, but God's temple was built in Jerusalem. At that time, it was a united kingdom. They were all together, and it was 20, 30 miles away. Not a big deal. But at the time of Jesus, there's been this separation of the kingdom for hundreds of years. There's been two separate captivities, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They've both come back in, but there's still this distinction. I mean, there is this hatred and this disdain between the Jews and the Samaritans. So Jesus boy breaks it down and says, we're to worship in spirit. The location's not based on any kind of historical significance from the past. You don't need to wait until you come to the youth retreat. You don't need to wait until you go to church. I love what Alex was saying last night. I mean, I can be in church and completely overwhelmed with the week that I've just had and not worshiping. Or I can be at my job and completely oblivious to the things that are going on around me and be worshiping. It doesn't matter. It's not based on me. It's based on Jesus, on who he is and what he's done in you and in me. So I got a couple of verses on the, the Spirit. Um, a couple more points, too. So you don't need to wait until you come to church. God is not confined by our past, by our circumstances, by our situation or anything else. Um, he's not limited by anything. 
And what did it say in John 4? He is seeking those. And he's seeking those true worshipers that will come and worship him in spirit and in truth. So Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, what does that say? I'm there with them. I'm in their midst. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What is liberty? Freedom. Freedom. So there is not any... It doesn't say where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is legalism. There is, there is law, there is requirements. There is this freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is, you have access, you have freedom. And then Romans 8.26. Just, I mean, this is Paul, I mean, getting into some, some of the deep theological kind of heady stuff. But he said, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which can, cannot be uttered. That means, I mean, it, it, Paul's talking about praying in the Spirit, but in that, in that relationship that you have with God and Christ in you, I mean, Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory, and His Spirit in you and moving, you're completely overwhelmed by something that's going on. And you want to pray to God, but you, you got to get some mess out of the way. You take your hands off of whatever it is that you're trying to fix before you come in, and it says that the Spirit kind of takes over, makes intercession for us, prays the things for us that we don't even know about. That is a mystery of God and how His Spirit works, but it's something that comes with relationship with Him. It comes with a, a walk with Him. So how are we to worship? Remember the woman at the well. Well, actually, I'll let you answer the question first. How are we to worship? In spirit and and truth. Did the woman at the well want to talk about the truth of her circumstances? Between verse 18 and verse 19 in John chapter 4? What did she say? I mean, it's, it's, it's not funny, but I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome. He's like, go get your husband and, and let's talk. And she's like, oh, I don't have a husband. He's like, that's true what you've said. You've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. What's her response to that? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to talk about that anymore. Let's talk about you, right? She doesn't want to talk about the truth of her circumstances. So she totally changes the subject. Let's get the, let's get the light off of me. I don't want to talk about my past. I don't want to talk about why I'm here at the well in the middle of the day, why I don't have any fellowship or any you know, community in this town it doesn't say she's a harlot, but it says a lot about her, right? So, um, she changed the subject and wanted to talk about Jesus being a prophet, but, I mean, you, you look through Scripture. I mean, Hebrews, so many times Jesus is so much more, so much greater than a prophet. Um, so, let's talk about Jesus and truth. John 1.17 for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Thank God for grace. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate, he's already been beaten. I mean, he's, he's spent the night. This is when, by the time Jesus got in front of Pilate, they'd already had, I mean, 
he was he was ridiculed, mocked. You know, his beard was plucked. Uh, all these things. I mean, read Isaiah 53. You look at the sufferings of Christ on our behalf and what he went through before he even got to the cross. But Pilate, therefore, this is John 18, 37, 38. Pilate said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? When he'd said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no fault in this man. But Jesus said, I, am, I have come. I am the truth. I came to testify of the truth. I, you know, grace and truth were given through him. So much of truth is Christ. So much of Christ is truth. So we got three words in John 4, 24. We got worship, we got spirit, and we got truth. Alex last night teaching, talking about what is worship. And um, there's different, I mean, you guys know Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic. There's different words. There's different languages. There's different meanings. This word for worship is proskuneo. It's uh, the Greek Strong's 435. Write that down and get a Strong's Concordance one day. But it talks about um, it talks about like a kiss, like a love. Um, talks about like a, a kind of a making yourself um, lower, kneeling down. You've seen like a person, you know, kissing kissing somebody's hand or you know bowing down before them to prostrate oneself, uh, to give homage, to give respect, um, reverence, worship. The most telling picture that I saw in this, I mean, so, I mean, falling down on your knees, touching the ground with your forehead, just an expression of almost brokenness, of I'm just laying down in front of you and, and worship. But the best picture that I saw in any description was a dog licking his master's hand. I mean, you get home from work, if you've got a dog, if you've held a puppy, and I mean, that puppy just kind of curling up and you feel the weight of that animal just whoo, relax, and then they kind of lean in a little bit and just start licking your hand. And it's just like, man, and that dog, I mean, it, it's a form of worship. But it's such a beautiful picture of, I mean, unconditional love, appreciation. I'm so glad you're home. I mean, this is, but it's, it's a love and that dog doesn't care anything about the rest of its day. It's like, my master's here. You see the, I mean, there's just some, yeah, anyways, there's some cool videos, <laughs> dogs coming home, whatever, but, so, um, proskuneo, worship, and it's just making yourself lowly, and then just adoring the object of your affection. Uh, spirit is, uh, Psalms, I'm sorry, Psalms, uh, Strong's 4151. It's Numa. And it talks about air. I mean, we, we see the spirit in creation. You know, the spirit was hovering over the land, and we've got the creation of the, the seas and the land. But it also talks about just the, the soul of man, the breath of life uh, that we're given. It talks about, uh, I mean, the Holy Spirit. It talks about, you know, the, the third person of this triune God. Um, he's equal with God. He's equal with the Father. He's equal with the Son. And then... 
it's just the way that his personality and character is emphasized. I mean, it talks about the Holy Spirit and then the, his work and his power and like the spirit of truth. So you've got this spirit and it's God's spirit. And that spirit is in the believer. I mean, when you come to Christ, you are given his spirit. We, uh, we had the, was the Amen Conference a couple years ago. And I was teaching about the Holy Spirit, and I was like, I kind of came to the revelation of, man, I've really discounted the magnitude of who the Spirit is in my life and what he offers. And, I mean, Jesus told the disciples that. He's like, I'm going away, but it's going to be okay. I'm sending somebody else. And they was like, you better send a good one. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like I'm sending my Spirit, and he's going to be in you. And, I mean, you're going to have power and boldness. And you see in the life of Peter, I mean, Peter was a, a knucklehead. He was, he was bold. He was brash. I mean, he, um, pushing people around, cutting people's ears off. And then when Jesus was crucified, I mean, he denied him. And then he's like, you know, he gets restored. And then he preaches Pentecost. And the guys that knew him from before was like, this doesn't make any sense. I've known Peter. This guy's a fisherman. He's a hothead. And he's at, and read First and Second Peter. That does not look like the writings of a fisherman. I'm just telling you. I mean, it's but this is the work of God's Spirit in in our lives, in my life, in your life. So His work and His power, and then truth. There's a lot of different words uh, for truth. This one is aletheia. It's uh, Strong's G225, and this is talking about objective truth. Not subjective. And I don't know if you guys know the difference. Subjective, su subjective truth, it's subject to change based on what you're talking about. It's subject to change based on perspective. It's subject to change based on what I had for breakfast this morning. That's not truth. Truth is concrete. Truth is like physics. The nature's the law. The way that God created things to design. The way, I mean... It's not based on your circumstances. It's not based on your opinion. Truth is true in no matter the situation. And, it, I mean, it's reality. It's certainty. It's something that you can trust in. It's not subject to debate. The problem with you know, a lot of <laughs> okay, a lot of stuff going on in our society today. But truth has, truth has come up for debate. People said, I don't know if that's true or not. Or that doesn't fit in with my truth. Guess what? Truth came through Jesus Christ, along with grace. And praise God for grace. So, truth is, here's a good definition. I mean, it's moral and religious truth as taught in the Christian religion. This is with respect to God and the execution of the purposes that he had that was fulfilled through Christ, through the atonement, through him laying down his life and his sacrifice. And it opposes the superstitions, the stuff that's kind of filtered in, whether it's, I mean, what we see in America sometimes, the, the prosperity and the, you know, the, the different false teachings. It's got an element of truth. They may mention the name of Jesus, but it's not founded in truth. And you guys, it is so important for you as you are, I mean, finishing up in youth group, as you're entering into adulthood, 
you guys need to get discernment. You guys need to get wisdom. You guys need to get exposed. You should not be insulated from the world, but you should not be integrated with the world. I mean, we're, we're told that we're to live here, we're to occupy until he comes, that we are to, uh, to be in it but not of it. Don't be deceived. Don't give up the things that you have been experiencing, the things that you've been taught that you've recognized as truth. Don't compromise. Um, so, John was talking, and I mean, Jesus was talking to this lady at the well about these true worshipers and how they're going to worship in spirit and truth. And honestly, looking at this, I was writing this down last night as Alex was teaching. This is my story. I was you. I sat in a youth group in high school. I saw God do some big things, just like big things were done in Shechem. And all of these things happened. And I was like, I'm just going to prop up on the fact that I was you know, that I made a profession of faith that, um, I mean, I don't even know. I, I was confused. I went into the military, and I had two sets of dog tags because I was raised Catholic, so I got some Catholic dog tags to check that box. But then I was like, I'm not a Catholic anymore. I mean, I went to a Baptist church in high school, and so I got a no religious preference dog tag. But I was confused. I was like, what am I going to do with this faith that started, this seed that started in my youth? I went into the military, moved away from my family, moved away from my youth group, everything else, and turned away. I turned around, and I'm now this falling away, I mean, not much different from this woman at the well that is now confronted with this man named Jesus that's telling me about living water and has a very simple message for me. It's not this deep theological debate. It's not this condemning message of you need to be thus and so. It's like... I'm looking for true worshipers that want to worship me in spirit and truth. Each one of you, I I pray that you don't have a falling away, but I know that you will be tempted and you will be, people around you, your environment will attempt to draw you away. There's nothing on the other side that's as good as Jesus is. I'll tell you that, being on both sides. Uh, So what does this mean to you? Um, God is a spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. With these words, Jesus is describing the basis for true worship, and it's not found in places. It doesn't, you do not have to wait until Sunday morning to not worship. You probably thought I was going to say worship, but sometimes you don't worship Sunday morning. Don't let anything limit you. And again, if, I mean, for me, if I take anything away from this weekend, it's Alex talking about being on a roof, hammering something in, and just oblivious to his surroundings and worshiping the Lord. Don't wait for Sunday. Don't wait for the next youth retreat. I'm so happy to be back with you guys. I didn't make the summer retreat, but man, it's been a long time. Don't wait for big things. God wants to meet with you every single day. Um, to worship in spirit means you're concerned with spiritual realities. Um, not so much with the places or the outward sacrifices, the cleansings, the trappings. There's so much in the law that is just like so prescribed and so... You have to do these things. I mean, Leviticus, there's a lot. Of, I mean, most of Leviticus is hygiene. Don't get other people sick, which is funny. I mean, now we're in, you know, I'm post-COVID, and people were just doing what they said in Leviticus. We probably would have been a lot better off. But it doesn't, that's not, the, that's not the main thing. That's not the important thing. 
And don't try it. So the reality, don't try to appear to be something that you're not. Don't wear a cross necklace and live in the world. Don't wear a Christian t-shirt. I mean, don't just, don't come and fake it. I mean, God wants you to be a true worshiper, to worship him in spirit and truth. Don't be checked out. Don't be uninterested. And then to worship in truth, this means that you are worshiping according to the whole counsel of God's word. Everything from, I mean, Genesis to Revelation. How Christ has revealed himself in scripture and how he's revealed himself in your life. I've told you guys before, you are the subject matter expert on what God has done in your life. Nobody can take that away from you. It's not up for debate. You know the difference of you today and you three years ago, three weeks ago. Who cares? Nobody can take that away from you. Um, and it also means, I mean, the worst of God in truth is that you're coming to him in truth. Not in pretense, not done out of spirituality or emotion. Um, and it does. It involves humility and respect. There's a weight to worship. It requires something of you, and you need to get yourself out of the way. And sometimes you need to examine yourself. If you've got unconfessed sin, man, that's so hard. To come in to a worship service, to come in to, I mean, to wake up and get out of bed, to get a good night's sleep, it is hard to do if you've got unconfessed sin. That's God's Spirit pleading with you to just make a turn away from your sin and to turn back to Him. So, examine yourself, confess sin, repent, and approach him in truth. Don't be like the Samaritans. They abandoned so much of that rich history. Now, there's other stuff that happened in 2 Kings. Between, I mean, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the divided kingdom. And I would encourage you guys, the Old Testament is a roller coaster. I mean, they should make a movie. They probably have. Um, but the, with this kingdom divided, they had, a, they had a vacuum of leadership. And in that vacuum of leadership, so much wickedness was taken, I mean, just took over the land. They hired their own priests. They're like, hey, I don't like what this guy's doing. Hey, I was just up in Damascus, and they got a really cool altar up there. We should build one just like it. I mean, it is atrocious. You guys have heard of, like, Ahab and Jezebel, northern kingdom. What's bad is over time, that stuff filtered into the southern kingdom as well. So the Assyrian captivity was one thing. And then not too long after is this Babylonian captivity. So the north and the south are displaced, and God's chosen people that were brought out of Egypt, brought out of bondage, given this promised land, have just given it over because they couldn't get themselves and their sin out of the way. So worship in spirit. Don't fake it. Be, don't be deceived. No matter where you are, in school, at home, wherever, always be prepared to enter authentic worship and do not be entangled by the distractions of your life or your past. And then worship in truth based on the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done in your life, the differences that it's made, and the truth of how much you love, appreciate, and adore him. Thank you, guys.